You're listening to the Pursue God Truth Podcast, the official channel for faith and life topics at PursueGod.org. Join us every week as we explore new topics from a biblical perspective. Okay, Ross, today we're in week number two of our series called Bible Basics. Now, last week, Ross, we talked about, we answered the question, where did we get the Bible? So we talked about verbal plenary inspiration. That's a mouthful. We talked about how God used human authors, how he superintended the process. That's what inspiration means. We talked about illumination. We talked about good Bible translations and the different types of translations, all that stuff. Today, we're going to move on to a second question that I think probably inquiring minds want to know. What is the structure of the Bible? Especially, Ross, for a lot of um, new Christians or newcomers to the Bible, one of the things I like to do is open up the Bible to the table of contents in the Bible. And we'll do that here in a little bit today. And we're going we're gonna to look at the table of contents with people, and we're going to like walk you through how that Bible is structured, because it might be a little bit different than people expect, right? It's, it's not the way... It's not the way that most books probably are structured, and a lot of people might be confused by that when they come to the Bible. So we're going to get into all of that, but maybe let's just start from the kind of the broadest, the broadest sort of subcategories in the Bible. The Bible's divided into two testaments, is what we call them. The Old Testament, that starts with Genesis, and the New Testament, that starts with Matthew. So start there, Ross, explain what is a testament? What are we even talking about? Right. The word testament is kind of a word nobody uses in English anymore. It means a covenant. It means kind of like a relationship. Um, so old covenant and new covenant might be language that maybe is more familiar to some of our listeners. But the Old Testament, and there was the original writings, uh, they're not old because they're obsolete, but they came first. And so they're the writings of that describe the original kind of relationship God had with with Israel, um, and some other things too, but leading up to that. And then the New Testament describes the new kind of relationship that God has with his people through Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament is preparatory toward Jesus. The New Testament tells us about Jesus, kind of connects the dots with the Old. So the Old Testament was written over a span of around a thousand years. Um, It's also called the Hebrew Bible because it's what the Jews had. It's the Bible that Jesus had and his fir- the first disciples had. And so there's a lot there. There's a lot of things to learn from that. Um, we, it should be part of our regular reading. Was, you know, as, as our listeners are thinking about how to read the Bible, we encourage you to read the Old Testament and the New Testament. We also have the New Testament, which was written over a much shorter span of time, a generation probably after the the death and resurrection of Jesus and its books that were written to churches, written to original uh, individual Christians. And those began to be collected in the generation um, after they were written. And um, so that over time, the, the churches affirmed what all the books of the New Testament would be. And so um, those two parts come together as the whole Bible to tell us God's story for today. Okay, so are they two, is it like, is the New Testament like a sequel to the Old Testament? Like, how should people think about the relationship between the Old and the New Testament? Are they talking about the same stuff in general? Again, just think about this, Ross, I guess, for the person who's really never read very much of the Bible. Let's let's answer it for those people first, then maybe we can expand the answer. Yeah, that's a great, a great analogy to talk about a sequel, because it does build on, it does assume all the things that happened in the Old Testament, and it builds on them, and it continues the story. But since a lot of times we'll say, hey, you should really start with the New Testament, and then read the Old Testament as you understand more about the New Testament, it's more clear, and it, there's, uh, you know, it's about Jesus, it starts with Jesus. So you could argue maybe that the Old Testament is a prequel to the New Testament, although honestly it was written first. So, um, so the main relationship between them is not just the timing. The timing is important because the one is the fulfillment of the other, because the, the New Testament then builds on and elaborates the themes that were exposed or revealed in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament has themes like creation and what's the nature of human sin and, and human uh, humanity. What does God do to, to save the human race? What is the day of the Lord and this sort of this impending judgment of God and so forth? The New Testament builds on all of those themes 
not not negating the Old Testament meaning, but giving us further insight and perspective on the themes that were introduced in the Old Testament. So that's one way that they relate to each other. Okay, so again, for the people who maybe don't know the answer to this, is is the does the New Testament ever quote the Old Testament? Like, are you going to ever see Old Testament showing up in the New Testament? And if so, like, what's the context for that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. The New Testament often quotes the Old Testament, and it quotes it directly, but it also makes allusions to uh, the Old Testament. It, you know, kind of brings things up without a direct quotation. So, for example, um, the New Testament authors as a whole were familiar with, that was their Bible, as we said a minute ago. And so they were well-versed in the Old Testament text. They believed it was inspired by God, we talked about last time. And so they used it that way. So, for example, Matthew's gospel makes a ton of references to Old Testament practices and it, the, the sacrificial system that was established in the book of Exodus. And it quotes a lot of Old Testament prophecies, but it doesn't just quote them and leave them hanging. It connects the dots and brings them to Jesus. And so the, the authors of the New Testament are very well versed. Another example would be in Romans chapter 4, Paul makes reference to the story of Abraham and talks about how Genesis 12, Genesis 15 and 18, how in Abraham, God developed this relationship with, or Abraham developed this relationship with God that was based on faith. And God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham believed the promise. And so God said that he counted that, that belief as righteousness for Abraham. And so Paul uses that Old Testament story in a major way to underscore what a right relationship with God looks like, that it's based on faith, not, by, not on performance. And so the Old Testament is found throughout the New Testament, which is one reason why, if we want to understand the New Testament, it helps to read the Old Testament, it helps to understand um, those things that were laid out first. Yeah, that's a good example because Paul did this. It's so hard to really understand the Old Testament if you don't understand it's the New Testament and the fulfillment in the New Testament. Like you said, Paul does this a ton. And Paul's a good example because before he became a Christian, Paul was a Pharisee, which means he really, really, really understood like book study style. He understood the Old Testament because that was that was a part of his coursework in college or whatever you would have called it back then. I'm like, he was an expert where as opposed to like a lot of the disciples, they were just fishermen. Now, again, they knew the, they knew the old Testament having gone to synagogue, but it's like, right. It's like Paul understood it at a whole different level as a Pharisee. And then he became a Christian. And that's why the writings of Paul are so fascinating. We get so much great doctrine from it because but because Paul really understood the connection from the Old Testament to the New Testament and the fulfillment in Christ of all of this stuff. And it's one of the things that's the, one of the most encouraging characters in my personal faith, Ross, is a guy like Paul who really under, thought he understood it. And then when he met Jesus, he really understood it. And it reminds me of what we talked about last time that Jesus sat down with his disciples. Remember the resurrected Jesus I think it was Luke 24, 27, that he he took his disciples. Now, Paul wouldn't have been there at the time because he came to faith later. But I think Jesus did a similar thing with Paul one-on-one. -on -one. That's my theory. But anyway, it says in Luke 24 that Jesus took his disciples through the writings of Moses and the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, so it's interesting that even when we read the New Testament, Luke 24 says that Jesus helped them to understand how to connect the dots from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Because honestly, they weren't that sharp. I mean, none of us are. They, I don't think that they would have really connected the dots on their own. Jesus helped them connect the dots. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit inspired the writings of the New Testament, just like you did the Old Testament. Yeah, your point. the point there is that there are dots. There's plenty of dots to connect. There is a, there is a relationship. And as Jesus used the Old Testament to explain himself to explain the prophecies that were fulfilled. That's one of the major connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament, because the themes that are introduced in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so the New Testament helps us understand um, how that works and helps us understand, oh, I get it. 
that sacrificial system. Oh, Romans chapter 7, 8, and 9 talk about how, oh, now Jesus fulfills those animal sacrifices in his sacrifice. So it's connecting dots right and left, really, uh, between the two testaments. Yeah, and so I think it's it's good for us to go to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He said this, he said, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. So again, what he's talking about some of the Old Testament there, right? He said, I didn't, I didn't come to abolish them. I came to accomplish their purpose. So I, I think it's good for people to know this. We're not saying, and you already said it, Ross, we're not saying the Old Testament means it's outdated and we shouldn't read it anymore. I think what he's what we're saying is what Jesus is saying is that Jesus accomplished the purpose of the Old Testament. In fact, he goes on, he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus himself is saying, read your Old Testament, but read it in the light of the New Testament because Jesus accomplishes and fulfills all of it. Yeah, that's really important. So we just want to like help our listeners understand as they open up the Bible to read it, that it's not two separate parts. It's not two separate things, I guess you could say. It's two parts, but it's not two separate books or two separate scriptures. It's an integrated whole. The one leads to the other. The other fulfills the one. Yeah, that's really good. Okay, so I can hear our listeners saying, well, wait a second, but I've heard of some other writings. So so we're talking about Old Testament, New Testament. So what, I think it's 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament. So that adds up to, did I, hit, did I get that right, Ross? That adds up to 66 books right. that are inspired by God. But some people, like maybe our Catholic n- listeners have something, maybe a Bible where they have something called the Apocrypha. So what's the Apocrypha? And why is that not in many of our Bibles today? Why don't we just start with that one? Yeah, that's a great question. The question is, is it just the Old and New Testament? You know, we're saying that it is. We're saying that makes up the Bible. That makes up Scripture. There's no Scripture outside the Bible. Um, And so what about the Apocrypha? Well, the Apocrypha are typically are books that are from the history of, say, the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament is 400 years where no scripture was written. The Apocrypha comes from like that that time frame, a lot of it. And, and so they're books from, they're legitimate books written by people uh, during that time frame that give some illumination to the history um, that's taking place and maybe some heroic figures and so forth. But... Um, the church, that Judaism never um, recognized the Apocrypha as being um, authoritative or scriptural. And then most of the Christians, in, of, that of the Christian leaders throughout history did not recognize the Apocrypha as being authoritative. That doesn't mean the Apocrypha might not be helpful in some ways. Maybe they are, uh, but they, but they're not, they don't speak for God. They don't, have the word of they're not the word of God um, that has the same authority and the same binding level of reality and truth on our conscience. Yeah, what we're talking about here, Ross, is the word canonicity. So let's take a minute and talk about that. So when we say that there, the sixty six books of the Old and New Testament make up the canon, when when most Protestant Christians, that's what they say, like those from Genesis to Revelation. That's it. Those are the books that we believe are canonical. Tell tell us what that word canon or canonical or canonicity tell us what that means and and how we decide how we decide what makes it into the canon of scripture. Right. So the word canon is spelled C A N O N. There's not two ends in the middle, so it's not a weapon, right? It's just but the word means in uh it comes from Latin which means a rule or a standard. And so the question is, what books meet the standard? What books is like a ruler that you measure something with. So what books uh, of ancient writers meet the standard or what books measure up? And so to be included in scripture. And so the church over, over time has, has recognized certain traits 
of ancient writings, and some of the writings measure up, and they're in our Bible today. And some of the writings from the ancient period, from the Christian world, from the a time frame of the early church, um, are deemed by the church as a whole not to measure up. And so, interestingly enough, the church isn't the one, the church is not deciding what books are canonical. The church is recognizing what books are canonical. There's a difference there. It's not like somebody says, some authority, some pope, or or somebody like that says, oh no, this one counts and this one doesn't count. No, it's a sense that the church as a whole, in all of its locations, in all of its uh, conversations um, among all the churches that existed, were saying, oh, this one has the marks of being inspired by God, and so we will accept that one because it, it sh- proves itself to be canonical. And there's several marks that the church has identified. Yeah, let's walk through those just real quick for our listeners. Just, again, th- I remember as a young Christian, probably junior high or maybe even earlier than that, thinking like, who got to decide what was in our Bible? And I, and I, don't, I never really knew how to, who to ask for that. And that's what we're talking about. And what we're saying, Ross, is that the early church got to decide right? That the early church, the, it was influenced by the disciples and the apostles. And then eventually it was formalized in some of these councils in the, in the first few hundred years of the existence of the Christian church. Do I get that right? Yeah. And the formalization of it had to do with these standards, but it also had to do with the general agreement about the use. So books that were not, were not recognized as canonical eventually fell out of use. Because they they didn't measure up and and books that now now there were some that were disputed all the way till the end you know but by and large the the history by the, by say the year three hundred the canon was established but long before that uh, by the middle of the century after the Bible Bible was written the New Testament was written so not long after the time of John wrote the book of Revelation the majority of the books in the New Testament. Were recognized. Now, the Old Testament was already recognized before the New Testament was written. It was recognized by a council of Judaism. So that so this process took place before Christianity for the Old Testament, but later on it took place for Christianity for the New Testament, and most of them were recognized by the church at large um, really not that long after they were they were written and in circulation. Okay, so let's just real quick, let's run through five of those marks. Of you know again where where the early church is saying should this really continue to be scripture and why is this scripture right so number one is apostleship what do, what do we mean by that that te- that first test is kind of a big one and again we're talking about the New Testament books right because the the Old Testament the Old Testament was is the Hebrew Bible so we didn't have to worry about that we're talking about the New Testament what is the mark of apostleship right these are these are books. They were recognized as having been written by the apostles, by the people that, that Jesus called to be apostles. So you're talking about Paul, Peter, James, you know, the, the whole crowd that was recognized as authoritative uh, because they'd been given authority by Jesus. Um, now, there's some books that were not written by apostles that are considered canonical. So, for example, the Gospel of Luke. Luke was not an apostle. Or the Gospel of Mark, nor was Mark. Now, now they're recognized as authoritative, however, because they were part of the apostolic circle because of their connection to the apostles. Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. They spent a lot of time together, and he's representing the perspective of Paul when he writes his gospel. Mark was a protege of Peter. They were closely connected, and when Mark writes the gospel of Mark, he's reflecting the memoirs essentially of Peter. And so apostleship then it starts with the, the people who were recognized by Jesus as apostles and given to the church, and then it extends slightly farther out to that to include people who are in that apostolic circle. Those people are recognized as having—this is the most authoritative claim probably for canonicity, is the claim mm-hmm. of apostleship. Okay, the second, the second claim or the second test of canonicity is universality. What, is, what do we mean by that? when we say that the books that we ended up with passed the test of universality. Right. I think I alluded to this a second ago where the whole church or the church as a whole in the ancient world, um, these were writings that reflected the unified view of the entire body of Christians, wherever they were. 
And so their their kind of majority um, recognition. So they're they're not reflecting just some fringe group. They're not reflecting some sort of uh, group that's happening off in a bywater or that hasn't you know reflected itself in the general typical uh, Christian community as a whole. And so that's what universality means. It was widely, broadly acknowledged by most uh, Christians in most churches at the time. The third test is orthodoxy. So Ross, what does it mean to be orthodox and how does that relate to the the test that, you know, that we were running this whole canonicity question through? Yeah, so this is a this saying, "Hey, does it measure up to what other books of the of scripture have said?" So Deuteronomy it says, "Hey, if a prophet comes to you and he tells you something you haven't heard before, then you should reject that prophet." And so the idea is applying that to the New Testament writings is saying, hey, if a book comes along and it claims to be, maybe maybe it claims to be apostolic as a name of an apostle, some of them that were written in you know 300 AD and so forth, attach the names of apostles. They're called pseudepigrapha. Pseudo means false. Pseudepigrapha, but they didn't always reflect the rest of what Scripture said. So the things that had already been revealed, the truths, the values, the doctrines that had already been revealed, that then an, any book claiming to be scripture ha, uh, can't be out of conformity with what God has already said in in books that are recognized as scripture. So that's the test of orthodoxy. The fourth test, Ross, is antiquity. So does that just mean if it's old, it's in; if it's new, it's it's out? What does that test mean? Yeah, not quite. Um, the antiquity means was it written in the same time frame um, as biblical times? So we're saying, so you know, the Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul wrote um, in the time frame. He wrote six, 50, 60, 65 A.D. Uh, Galatians might have been in the fifties A.D. So this is when the, the church is all happening. This is when the Book of Acts is happening. This is within the light, you know, the lifetime of people who knew Jesus personally. Um, and so some of the, so the lost gospels they're called. They're the Gnostic Gospels. They've been discovered in a in a library, an ancient library in Egypt. Um, they were written, say, in the three hundreds. So they were written much later. So they missed the test of antiquity. From our perspective today, that's antiquity. But from the perspective of the original writings and the original happenings of early Christianity, they're written afterward, and so they're they don't have the same credibility the same level of authority as the books that were written in that earlier time frame. Yeah, there maybe some of our listeners have heard the Dan Brown series and some of the some of this kind of stuff where it talks I think maybe it, it t- kind of talks about the Gospel of Thomas maybe or the Gospel yeah. of Judas. So some of these lost gospels, some of these gnostic gospels. Again, just because something sounds old to us, you know, maybe it was written in 200 or 300 AD does not mean that the early church, and this this gives me great comfort to know, Ross, that the early church, no one in the early church was like, oh, we should include this. We should right. throw this one in there too. Um, so even though for us it feels like, man, that was that was pre- that's pretty old. We should maybe we should pay attention to that. Know that the early church got it right. They weren't going to be duped, right? Yeah. So the, the gospels you mentioned, Gospel of Thomas, and Peter, and some of those writings. They fail antiquity, the test of antiquity. They also fail the, the test of um, apostolicity because they happened, those apostles weren't, weren't alive anymore when those books mm. were written. And so they claim to be the gospel of the apostle Thomas, but it was written mm-hmm. two or 300 years after Thomas died. They also fail the test of orthodoxy because they introduce ideas that are more rooted in Gnosticism, ideas that would be foreign to the New Testament, have Jesus saying some things that were foreign to the records that we have of what Jesus said. And so they fail the test of canonicity on more than one front. Well, even even the second one we talked about, universality, like yeah. there might have been a fringe group that was calling for it, like a, what we would call a cult today, but but the but it wasn't this unified, like the body of Christianity wasn't saying this is right, this rings true. They knew they knew it was like uh it was just false. It was false teaching, right? Yeah, great they understood point. it. One more. Okay, one more test. So we've talked about apostleship, universality, orthodoxy, antiquity. The last one is divine effect. What is what is the 
canonical test of divine effect when we when we think about scripture. Yeah, this one's probably the lowest category, um, but we're talking about how the message of the book has life changing power in people's experience. And so, you know, if it's really from God, if it's really God breathed or inspired, then it's going to have you know some impact and some power in people's lives. That's legitimate. Now, the problem here is that different groups can claim that their writings have that effect. There's no way to to measure it. There's no way to say, oh, yeah, well, you you only hit seven on the 10 scale of divine effect. So, for example, Latter-day Saints would argue that the Book of Mormon has life-changing power in people's experience. But the Book of Mormon fails all the other tests of canonicity. And so this one, I think, is important to consider, but it's not as... It's not the Trump. It's not like, you know, it's it's the it's the three instead of the ace, you might say, in the in the canonical uh you know arrangement. Okay, so we've we've talked about you know the old and the new testament, 66 books, why we believe that only that, that and only that is is really um inspired by God and and worth elevating above every other book in our library. So let's just get real practical here, Ross, and talk about how the Bible is organized. So I want to encourage our listeners to like open up your Bible. If you're sitting and listening at home, open up your Bible to the table of contents. I love doing this with people, Ross, and I don't think we've ever done this on the podcast. So let's take a minute and and walk through this. And let's talk about how the Bible is organized. Now, most books are organized like, I don't know, like they're telling a story. So maybe they're organized kind of like chronologically to tell it, depending on what kind of book you're reading. But if it's a history book, you're going to, it's probably going to be like, we're going to start with this war and then we're going to move through history. But I think it's important for our listeners to understand that's not how the Bible is organized. That's why I encourage people, man, if you, if you start at Genesis and read through, you're going to probably be a little bit confused if you don't understand the way it's organized, because it's going to feel like it's jumping around. So Ross, if it's not organized according to chronology, then how is the Bible organized? Yeah, that's a great it's a great point to make, Brian, because people assume it to be chronological, but it's organized according to the type of literature that's contained in each book, which is what we mean by genre. We talk about genre. Now, the idea of genre is not limited to the Bible. It's a literary term. Um, it relates to literature in every language. So, for example, in English, English language has a number of genres and our listeners would understand them. Fiction, biography, essay, poetry, drama. There's a lot of sub-dramas, uh, sub-genres, like anime, I guess, is a genre now. And so it's diff- different ways that literary ideas are packaged in their literary form. And so the point is you don't read an essay the same way you read a poem. You don't read a, a essay the same way you read a personal letter because they're different genres. And that's how these literary forms or styles are how the Bible is organized um, from start to finish. Okay, so instead of thinking of a history textbook, that's not how the Bible is organized, it's better maybe than Ross to think of a library. The Bible is organized more like a library. You walk in, uh, maybe nobody knows what a library is anymore, <laughs> but you walk into it or maybe go, go onto your Kindle bookstore. You go on there and you can pull down all the different genres of book, all the different categories. You know, back in the day, we would walk into a library and we'd go over to the to the uh, Dewey Decimal System cards, and we'd pull the thing open, and we'd we you need to know if you were looking for a fiction book or a nonfiction book. Those were the big, those were the largest sort of subcategories, and then down from there. So that's how it works. So Ross, let's let's kind of open up our 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 Bibles to the first page to that table of contents, and so let's walk through the genres. So we already talked about the two major subsections: our Old Testament, New Testament. But within each testament, there's a different genre. The first genre in the Old Testament, we're just going to call it law, or the Jewish people would have called it the law of Moses. So those are the first five books of the Bible. Tell us a little bit about those books. Right. And so in in your Bible, in your table of contents, you'll see Genesis is first, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So Genesis to Deuteronomy, those five books reflect the genre that we call law. They aren't the only books of law but they contain the way that God wanted his people to live as he called them to himself 
uh, the commands he gave to them, how they were supposed to worship, how they're going to live their lives, how they interact with surrounding nations. Now, um, those are that's the main thrust of those. Now, any given book of the Bible might reflect more than one genre. So the book of Genesis isn't all about law. It's building mm-hmm. up to law, and it's connected to the whole idea of law. There's some history in the book of Genesis. There's some history in the book of Numbers. And so, but but usually in a given book of the Bible, one particular genre is prominent, and that's why it's been organized that those five are organized together in your table of contents. Okay, so those that's the first five books of the Bible in the Old Testament, and it's called law. The next category or genre, as as we are looking at our table of contents, we're going to call that, we're going to label that history. Okay, so this includes 12 books, the next 12. Let me read them. It's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So those 12 books, we call those history. So Ross, I guess two questions. Are, are those in chronological order then, since they're history books? Yeah, those are, they're pretty much in chronological order, yes. Um, basically. Now, some of them cover, so Kings, First and Second Kings covers the same time frame as First and Second Chronicles. So it's not like you go, oh, Chronicles picks up where Kings leaves off. No, it, they start around the same time frame and end around the same time frame. So it's not perfectly chronological, but it's generally chronological. Okay. Now keep this in mind. I think this is important for our readers to understand. Like if you're trying to understand the Old Testament historically, I think it's good to read, again, from Joshua all the way through Esther, but you also have to mix in some of the history that we find in Genesis and Numbers, right? So that'll, and we'll talk more about this in lesson four of our series when we talk about the story of the Old Testament. A lot of that we're going to be talking about from those history books in those first 17 books of the Bible. Again, the first five are technically in the law genre, but there's some history mixed in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we learn about Abraham, we learn about the the 12 tribes, all that stuff. So so there's there's history mixed in a lot here. But the, the reason it's important to understand that is because now the next the next couple of categories technically chronologically fall in somewhere interspersed historically in those books that we already mentioned. And that the next section is called poetry. And that's five the five next the next five books. And so that includes, let's see, where do we where do we leave off? Job, Psalms. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, those five books. Why do we call that poetry? And is it going to be just like reading Walt Whitman? <laughs> no, we call it poetry. Poetry is, in Hebrew poetry, has its own unique characteristics. It's not rhyming poetry. It's parallelism. And so um, so it, the Hebrew reader would have understood the imagery that you know, that comes across in the poetry and what it was trying to say. For us, it reads different from narrative. It reads different from the law. And so, because it is so um, full of um, symbolism and metaphors and so forth. So, it's not entirely like he- English poetry, but, but it's not f- totally foreign from it. And so, it needs to be read differently from history or law. Um, it uses smaller amounts of words to convey these powerful meanings. Um, and so it now not all history is the same. I mean, not all poetry is the same. So the book of Job has some narrative in it, but it's largely telling a, a, a story of um, metaphor and of kind of like it's working through some things. And then uh, Proverbs are very different from Psalms. And so the broader category is poetry, though, within, within that broader category, there's some specific subgenres, you could say. But so let's talk about how that fits into the history books. So for example, Song of Songs is attributed to Solomon. And so Solomon lived during the time that we've already mentioned, right? In the in the books of what what would that be? Second Kings and First Chronicles or somewhere in there, right? Yeah, That's where yeah. you read about mm-hmm. Solomon. And and David likewise wrote a lot of the Psalms, or a lot of them were attributed. So many of the Psalms, most of the Psalms, right? were written in a certain period of time that that readers would have already read about in the history book, but now they're reading some Psalms. And you might even find some of the Psalms in the history books, right? In kind of in the historical narrative, but now you find so many more of those Psalms 
in the book of Psalms, which was like the, the hymnal for the, for the Jewish, for the Hebrew church in the Old Testament. Okay, so we've talked about law, we've talked about history, we've talked about poetry. Now, the next category could either be one or two, depending on how we slice it. And in, in broad terms, it's called prophets. And Jesus, we've already read this before, Jesus said the law and the prophets. And so, but we can actually break down the, the final books in the Old Testament into two subsections, the major prophets and the minor prophets. So the major prophets, Ross, are the prophets from Isaiah to Daniel. There's five of those. And the minor prophets are the prophets from Hosea to Malachi, and there's 12 of those. So it's interesting, lots of fives, lots of twelves mm-hmm. when we're breaking down these genres. But why are what are the prophets? Who were they? And why do we have a distinction between major and minor? Right. The prophets were the, you know, they were individuals that God called to speak to the nation and write to the nation, ultimately, to draw the people back to their covenant relationship with God. So they're telling... Um, they're not just forecasting the future. They're making promises of the future of God's grace, as well as God's potential judgment, but all in order to call the people back to their covenant relationship with God. And the reason that there's, they're called major and minor is because the major ones are just big, the minor ones are small. So you have the whole the book of Isaiah. It's got you know 60-some-odd chapters. The book of Hosea has like 11 chapters or something. So so they're not minor because they're unimportant, but just because they're smaller, but they have the same purpose and the same intent, major and minor prophets, to tell God's people, um, to help them understand the events of the time in light of their relationship with God. Okay. And speaking of time, when were these prophets, like, are these, are these prophets chronologically, do they fit into the Genesis time frame, into the Exodus time? Like, time frame wise, where do most or all of these prophets fit in? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, really, they, they fit in primarily from, let's say, the eighth century BC until the, say, the four, so let's say 700 or 750. To 400 BC, so they fit in with the same time frame as Kings and Chronicles, and so after King David, and then um, the prophets began to write in the generation or two after him throughout the lives of all the rest of the kings. Yeah, and so again, it's not that you're not going to read about some prophets during David's time, like Nathan was a prophet, but he doesn't have a book. the The prophets were a lot of these prophets are now after the, even the time of Solomon. And this is as the kingdom, as the kingdom splits apart and as they get exiled and, and some of these things are happening, or even just a little bit before that, these prophets are trying to speak out to the people. But again, it's important to understand that then when you're reading these prophets, you're reading about stuff. If you're reading from Genesis through Malachi, you're actually going to be reading about this prophetic stuff months after you've already read this, the historical context in which they had been writing. And so that that's why it's important to understand that we're not talking about chronology here in the Old or New Testament. We're talking about the different genres, and it'll just help you to make a lot more sense of the Bible. Okay, so that's the Old Testament, Ross. Let's talk about the New Testament, because the New Testament has some of its own genres as well. And the first one includes the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And the genre name for those four books are called Gospels. What does that word mean? The gospel basically means good news. It's stories of good news, and it's a form of history. It's different from, say, history. We'll talk about history in a minute with the Book of Acts, but it's accounts of the life of Jesus, but it's not necessarily always just chronological, and it's not necessarily just like an account of like, oh, this is what happened that day, and this is what happened the next day, but it's all for a purpose um, to talk about who Jesus was and to present him and his identity to people. And so there's an arra- some arrangement that goes on. There's some selection um, of events that goes on from the perspective of the writers. And so the Gospels were written by followers of Jesus or people who were close to them uh, or people who did a lot of research or talked to eyewitnesses. They weren't eyewitnesses themselves, like Mark and Luke. Now, Mark knew Jesus we believe that Mark was an eyewitness in some ways. Luke was not, but they talked to eyewitnesses. They did research in order to describe Jesus' words and actions in order to um, underscore his identity. Okay, now Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
are a little bit different than John. So maybe our readers or listeners know this, that when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, it sounds like you're, re- you're repeating a lot of the same stories. And when you read John, it sounds very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So explain the difference and talk about the word synoptic. Yeah. The, the word synoptic, just the word sin means together. And the word optic means you view something like your optician, right? So it means they view the life of Jesus from a similar perspective. And so there's some, there's some dependence. There's some relationship between the synoptic gospels. Maybe they're drawing from one common source that we don't have anymore, or maybe they're maybe drawing from each other to some extent. And John is not synoptic because John uses a different set of, of data. He uses different um, organization. Now, there, there is overlap between the events because they're events of Jesus' life. But John presents them from a perspective that's less like the perspective of the other three. So it, it's not called synoptic. Yeah, because it's John's perspective, right? And that's just a very, that's a different, per- we, I think we talked last time about the fact that, what is it, that Mark was probably written, Mark wasn't an apostle, but his, his, his version, his gospel depends on Peter. So it's really probably Peter's perspective. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it's important to understand that when you're reading the gospels. That's why I encourage people to start with the gospel of John, because if, if when you start with the gospel of Matthew, for some people, it'll just sound like by the time you get to Mark and to Luke, you're like, I feel like I've read all this before. I mean, it's all worth reading. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's all God's word. But for the uninitiated, it might just feel a little bit redundant. That's because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all called synoptic gospels. Okay, so that's the gospel genre. The next genre in the New Testament mirrors a genre in the Old Testament. We talked about the 12 history books of the Old Testament. Well, there's a history genre in the New Testament as well, but there's only one book in it, and it's the book of Acts. So explain that. Yeah, the the book of Acts is a is sort of a, a history of the church and how the church was started. Now, it's sort of a history again because now every historian is going to be interpreting, is going to be drawing on materials. Like I said, with the Gospels, the writers of the Gospels are not telling us, you know, it's not a it's not a strict chronology like you might read in the newspaper. The same thing with the Book of Acts. So it's focused on the spread of the Christian church starting with just a few Christians in Jerusalem to track the spread of Christianity throughout the entire Roman Empire over the first generation of Christianity's existence. So it's a perspective. It's, it's, it is a lot like the Old Testament history because it's talking about how is God involved in the events that happen uh, to human beings. And so it's really seeing it from the perspective of God's involvement, God's activity in the chronology of of the times. Okay, the next genre again as you're reading your as you're going through your table of contents, we've covered Matthew, Mark, Luke, we've covered Acts. The next genre starting with Romans and going all the way through Jude. So it's a ton, lots of lots of books here. The overarching genre is called epistles and that just simply means letters, right? But but Ross, we can actually break down the, these epistles into a bunch of subgenres. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. We talk about the Pauline epistles, and uh, and then we talk about the general epistles. We talk about pastoral letters. So walk us through that as we start with uh, the Book of Romans. Right. The Pauline epistles are that refers to all the letters that Paul wrote. Now, some of them he wrote to churches like the church in Rome. Rome, he wrote Romans. Some of them he wrote to individuals, um, pastoral relationships, like he wrote the, the first and second Timothy, he wrote Philemon. So those are all under the Pauline epistles, but they are separated into, say, pastoral versus general um, epistles. Okay, and let so, me let me yeah. pause. Let me list them out for you, Ross, here, and stop me and clarify as we need to. So so we have Romans in order. We have Romans, first and second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, first and second Thessalonians. Okay, so those are all city names, right? Romans, that's a city of Rome, Corinthian city of Corinth. So these are written to the churches in those regions, in those cities or regions. Galatia was a region, Ephesus was a church. So again, we're reading about some of these. We some of these names pop up when we read the 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 book of Acts, right? Because Paul 
has a missionary journey. He's going through the area of Galatia. He's, you know, he's talking about going to Rome. So again, for our listeners, there it's helpful for the, helpful for them to connect the dots that that this is all these are letters that Paul has written back to these churches that you'd been reading about in part in the book of Acts as you're reading the story of Paul's missionary journeys. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And there is a real connection between the Pauline epistles and the book of Acts, because Paul is one of the major characters in the latter half of the book of Acts as well. So he he went to Ephesus, he wrote the book, the letter of to the Ephesians, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I left off at Second Thessalonians. So those are the letters that he wrote to the churches. But then there's letters, like you mentioned. The next, the next one is First Timothy and Second Timothy. So now you're getting into the personal names. It's a good way to remember it. Yeah. If it's a city name or a region name, we're talking about in most cases Paul's writing to that region or that church in the region. But when you look at a name like First and Second Timothy, those are two letters that Paul wrote to his buddy Timothy or Titus. That's another guy's name. Paul's writing to Titus or Philemon, and so that's where we end. Th- these are all letters attributed to Paul. And so they're all, in broad terms, Pauline epistles, but some of them are written to churches, some of them are written to pastors or to individuals. Okay, and again, it's helpful to know that when you read these so that you can uh, kind of understand what you're reading and who, you know, who, who wrote this and why he wrote it. Now, the next one is a little bit unique, Ross, because the next one in our, in our Bibles is the book of Hebrews. So talk about why Hebrews is there and what we believe about the book of Hebrews now, like who wrote that one? Well, nobody's exactly sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some people think it was Paul. Some people think it was Apollos. And so it's never... Now, Paul, in in his epistles to, say, Ephesians or Corinth or whatever, he says he introduced himself. He says, we know who this is. And he gives some personal notes at the end. He says, you know, send send Timothy to me or whatever. But But Hebrews doesn't have those kind of personalized uh, earmarks. So people look at it and say, well, what are, what, what are some theories that make sense? And, and there's different d- debates about that. So we don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Okay, the next, le- the next books of the Bible are a little bit confusing if you don't, if you don't know this little trick, because they're, we're talking about names again, okay? So after Hebrews, we have a few more names. We have James, we have First and Second Peter, we have First, Second, and Third John, and we have Jude. And so walk us through this, because I just said, hey, whenever a name pops up, it's Paul writing to those people. Like First and Second Timothy isn't authored by Timothy. It's authored by Paul to Timothy. But now, now we kind of have to make a shift because talk about James and Peter and John. Right. So actually, these, these sets of epistles are written by the people that it says. So there's four authors there. There's James. There's John, there's Peter, and there's Jude. And um, first and second means he wrote more than one. You know? So, you know, if you applied that standard to Paul, you'd have like eighth Paul, ninth Paul, whatever. So, it, you know, it kind of becomes even more confusing. It's more helpful to us to know who he's writing to. But in these cases, these James, um, John, Peter, and Jude were not necessarily writing to specific recipients. But they're not writing to a specific church, the church in, in Corinth or whatever, or a specific individual like Titus. So there's another way that reason they're named differently, because they're writing generally to—, to uh, James is writing to um, people who are from a whole bunch of different places, but they're scattered by— They've been scattered by persecution or whatever. And so and so Peter is writing, again, these audiences are more broad than just the specific congregation in Philippi, for example. Okay, so th- those are the epistles. And again, it goes from Romans all the way down to Jude. And it's an interesting to note that Paul then wrote 13 epistles. He wrote 13 of the books of the New Testament. And if you remember from last time, we talked about how many books of the New Testament there are. There are 27. So that's crazy, Ross, that Paul wrote almost half. Now, maybe not by verse, but by by title, at least, or by, by book. He wrote almost half, just short of half of the New Testament. That's amazing. And we get tons of doctrine from Paul. And part of the reason for that is because that's God, that, that was God's plan. 
is that God, you know, Paul was a Pharisee and he really understood the Old Testament, but now he understands it really in the light of Jesus. And and so Paul's Paul's writings are just brilliant. And uh, by any standard, even if you're not a Christian, Paul's writings are brilliant. Really, all of Scripture is brilliant because, again, all of Scripture is inspired by God. Okay, so genres. We've got the Gospels. We've got the history book of Acts. We've got the epistles. And then one more genre and it's the last book in the, in our Bibles. It's the book of Revelation. And this falls, again, in a kind of a unique category. We call this apocalyptic writing. What does that fancy word mean? Yeah, apocalypse has to—the word itself means the return of Jesus. It's revealing. The, the word apocalypse means a revelation. So it's, it's talking about how Jesus is revealed at the end of time. So it's a mix of prophecy and eschatology. It's And the, the, what you marks apocalyptic literature— and it does occur in other places in the Bible, say, for example, a little bit of it in the book of Daniel. Um, it, it's very symbolic. Um, it, it's not necessarily literal in all the things that it says, but it gives us a powerful picture of God's vision for the end of the world. And it uses symbolic language to do that for us. Okay, Ross, we're almost out of time, but we just have to answer one really practical question because we just spent a lot of time on canonicity. We spent a ton of time on genres and how to understand. You open up your table of context and content table of contents and try to understand the Bible, Old and New Testament. Why why does this matter? Why why is it useful to understand like which books are epistles, which books are history books, which books are poetry? Why does genre matter? Yeah, because you're going to read different genres in different ways. You're going to understand them differently. If you got an advertisement in the mail, junk mail, we call it, right? You would not open it up and start reading it as if it was a letter from your mom, right? You say, oh man, my mom is having a big sale this weekend. I should go down to Riverdale Road and and like I should, oh, thanks, mom. <laughs> you know, that you would totally misunderstand the meaning yeah. of that of that literature if you didn't understand the genre. And so that's helpful to Now this is a uh, you know going to be, you know, heady stuff for a lot of people, but I think as you understand the idea of genre, you don't have to be able to define them all, but as you read along, you'll see it. As you're reading in the Bible, you'll start to see it. And how epistles are different from proverbs and they're different from psalms in some key ways. And so we just want our our listeners to understand that how you read the genre is going to affect how you understand it, and it's going to make better sense on how you apply it to your life. Yeah, this is per a perfect lead into our episode next week, because next week in Lesson 3, we're going to talk now, now that we've kind of understood the Bible, where it came from, where we got it from, um, how it's organized, I think finally we're, we're going to be able to get to like, okay, how should I study it? Like, what are some really helpful tips for opening my Bible and studying it so that it can impact my life. And that's what we're going to be talking about in lesson three. So make sure to join us next week.